Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. And greetings to all of you listening far and wide from places like New Bedford, Massachusetts, Guthrie, Oklahoma, Dana Point, California, Tottenham, Ontario, Canada, Jakarta, Indonesia, and Wellington, New Zealand. Thanks for listening and making Horsepower Heritage a part of your day, and I'm sure that a lot of you are probably enjoying summer vacations and getting the most out of your classic cars right now, but you know, if you're sitting on a beach somewhere, or if you're on a long road trip, and there are some episodes you haven't heard, scroll back and listen to those, because I guarantee there's some great stuff there that'll keep you entertained this summer. And if you're new here, smash that follow button, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave me a five-star rating and a review, tell your friends about the show, and... You know, I say this every time, right? But it truly is the way we grow the podcast, so I really depend on you guys. All right, well, today we're going to be talking about what many consider to be the pinnacle of British motorcycles, the Vincent. Now, Philip Vincent was a true maverick. He spent his whole life doing things in an unconventional way, and that bold risk-taking gave birth to some of the finest high-performance machines of the 20th century. And now, a new film tells the Vincent story, through archival footage and interviews with people who were there, as well as Vincent fans like Jay Leno. And whether you're a motorcyclist or not, I know you're going to appreciate this. The film is called Speed is Expensive, and it's narrated by Ewan McGregor. And my guest today is the man who made it happen, director and producer David Lancaster. So we're going to dive into the history of Vincent Motorcycles, their marvelous engineering, and the thrill of speed, from the Isle of Man TT to the Bonneville Salt Flats. And that's coming up right after this. This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. No matter what's in your garage, you can fit all your automotive heroes on a shelf. And they've got you covered, whether it's 143rd scale, 118th scale, or even the ginormous 1-8 scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. Go to ModelCitizenDieCast.com and get 10% off when you use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout. Limitations apply. From race cars to street cars and everything in between, it's Model Citizen Diecast. Because your inner child still wants to play with cars. And now, a peek behind the scenes of the film, Speed is Expensive. My interview with David Lancaster, right here on Horsepower Heritage. David, great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah, it's lovely to be here on the show. I'm so glad that we could do this because I've seen the film. It's called Speed is Expensive. It's the story of the remarkable Vincent motorcycle. And um, for listeners who maybe have not seen a Vincent, if you ever catch a motorcycle show or a Cars and Coffee and a Vincent pulls in, Go and look at that bike, and the details will jump out at you. And they are—they are a singular machine. I, I, no, you're right. There's nothing like them um, for the time, but also now they'll, they'll still sit on the freeway at eighty. I guess maybe we should start with with your bio. Of course, you're the director of the film, but you have a, a lifelong motorcycle background, and particularly with Vincent's. Yes, uh, my father owned Vincent's from. The mid fifties, nineteen fifty four. I think he bought his first Vincent, and he was he loved touring on them. He, he never. I rode a lot with him in the eighties. He passed away in nineteen ninety. Um, he never went terribly fast, but he, he would just love sitting there all day doing three, maybe four hundred miles, and that was his thing. And he would sort of go into this almost into this trance of long, you know, long distance riders do, don't they? We've all done it. So him and my mother toured a lot in the late 50s and early 60s. They went to Yugoslavia on the Vincent, went down to Italy. I mean, Yugoslavia at the time, as you know, was under General Tito behind the Iron Curtain. And it's quite an undertaking. No phones, no credit cards, currency restrictions. And then on my mother's side, uh, so her father was a gentleman called Charlie Hornby, who I do remember. And he was a very successful speedway rider in the late 20s, mid to late 20s, rode for Bellevue over here, rode at the Yankee Stadium in New York, I think for a couple of seasons, rode in South Africa, um, and I think made quite good money. Um, it was a big sport at the time, and Speedway would get crowds of 80 or 100,000. It was like the football of the 20s and 30s. And then his son, so my uncle Colin, he raced BMW Rennsport Grand Prix psycho outfits very successfully made a living didn't 
you know, he always said, I, you know, I, I never bothered the world championship, <laughs> but he would get, you know, thirds and fourths. And, you know, I think he came second at the Nuremberg ring, which, as you know, the, the Germans dominated sidecar racing. So to come second at the Nuremberg ring in 68, 69, his best result, bizarrely, was on a solo, a Norton, which him and his friend in Liverpool put together. They entered the Barcelona 24-hour Grand Prix, 1964, and they came second and Colin and his partner, Chris, I think it was, they came just ahead of a chap called Angel Nieto, who would later become 125CC world champion. So, uh, you know, in some ways, I can see the seeds of it were probably set very early, yes. David, how did you in particular become the director and co-producer of this film out of, out of so many people? My career was in journalism, it was, <laughs> is. I, I now teach journalism at, at the University of Westminster. And I began after I left university, I was a motorcycle journalist for three years, which was great fun when you're in your 20s, you get all the latest bikes to kind of ride. But in some sense, you know, looking back now, I, I knew after three years, I didn't really just want to write about motorcycles. There's some great stories there. But at the time in, in the late 80s, there was this constant slew of really high performance motorcycles with wonderful bikes, you know, Yamaha FZRs and GCXR Suzuki's and CBR Hondas. As a journalist, there, it, there isn't a lot interesting to say when the, the 1990 model is two miles an hour faster than the 1989 model. So I, I moved into more mainstream journalism and did some television work. I, I worked at Top Gear in the 90s and was a researcher and then a director. And I came to the Vincent film um, I met my co-producer, Jerry Jenkinson, at a Vincent Owners rally. So I sort of kept my interest in motorcycles and old motorcycles. And we started talking and I sort of said, wouldn't it be good to record the last few people who worked at the Vincent factory? And that was the genesis of the project. So um, Jerry and I started tracking down. And in the end, we interviewed 14 men and women who worked at the Vincent factory and then it began to mushroom, and the Vincent family, who I'd known for many years through my parents, I kind of slightly badgered them and said, oh, you've got some rolls of film in the garage, you know, let's, let's get those restored and digitized. And that was like a Pandora's box of wonderful footage that, that, that Vincent had filmed, some of it in 16mm color on his Bolex camera, visits to South America, visits to America, visits to Europe, you know, mainly his visits were to promote the motorcycles, but he, he would drive to Europe in his lovely old Bristol, I think, 401, I think. And so we, Jerry and I realized there was a really good story to tell. And with access to the family films, there was a way of telling it because otherwise it would be talking heads. And so that got us into various other points where the project sort of stepped up a notch. So we spent a lovely day or day and a half with Jay Leno. So talking about his Vincents and he's passionate and rides them and really knowledgeable. Uh, then we got the last interview with John Surtees uh, and he was an apprentice at the Vincent factory, which not many people know. I'm, I'm very happy with it. I think it tells a really good story of not just the motorcycles, but I think more interestingly, more importantly, Philip Vincent himself, because he was this fascinating, could be infuriating figure, but it built possibly the world's most famous motorcycles. I gather that's because he was basically an uncompromising guy who just, he wanted to do it the way he wanted it done. And, and sometimes that didn't seem realistic to the, the people around him, but he was insistent. Yes. And he had a vision. One of my good friends who's helped us on the film is a, a curator at the design museum, Andrew Nahum. He, he always says that Vincent was the Bugatti of the motorcycle world because almost everything was different. The company, <laughs> given that these things were sold at, at, at very high prices and, and obviously now command high prices, the company never really made much money. But if you look back to the, he never built a motorcycle without rear suspension, which was really unusual in the late 20s and 30s. You know, And motorcyclists are quite conservative people. And the general view, I mean, we've got these lovely audio tapes of Vincent talking. You know, he said people would be waiting to attend your funeral if you built or rode a motorcycle with rear springing. Most motorcyclists thought, put a bigger rear tire on and that'll sort the suspension out. And of course, the suspension wasn't that good then. 
So you, you can understand engineering wise, if the damping isn't very good, introducing, you know, an element of springing might not be good. But Vincent could see that when you've got suspension, you've got traction, you know, and he was completely right. It's the same with the fully enclosed motorcycles. The Series Ds, the, the Black Prince and the Black Knight had this scooter like enclosure, you know, way ahead of his time, too far ahead, really. They built these out of fiberglass, GRP, and most motorcycles now of that size, 1,000cc, are fully enclosed. But motorcyclists, you know, they thought this is a big scooter. I think the main thing, which I certainly can see, is why cover up this beautiful V-twin engine, which mainly the work of Phil Irving, who was his co-designer, who joined in 1931 with some fiberglass. Yeah, and... um I think maybe it's a good idea to give people a little bit of a background on how Vincent Motorcycles came to be. It wasn't as if Philip Vincent just started building a motorcycle from scratch. He took an existing company and made it his own, right? Yeah, that's that's mostly true. Um, the company was HRD, which had been started by Howard Raymond Davis, who was a he was a World War One pilot, uh, very successful. He remains. I think I'm right. He remains the only person to have won the TT on a motorcycle of his own design. So he HRD won the TT on an HRD. He's also the only person to win the the 500cc race on a 350. Quite an amazing man. And Vincent loved his motorcycles. And we've got in the film these wonderful pictures that Vincent kept when he was at school. HRD had gone into receivership. So the name was available and he dropped out of Cambridge. They paid £450, which in 1928-29, quite a lot of money. He bought the HRD name. They found premises in Stevenage. And he was making motorcycles as the head of the company. So that became the Vincent HRD. He was Vincent was using his, his family money because his family were wealthy ranchers in Argentina. They were Anglo-Argentine. Um, which, you know, people say, well, if you've got the money, you, you know, but he wasn't a dilettante. It wasn't just, I'll just try this for a couple of seasons. You know, he stuck with it throughout the depression of the 30s. He, he stuck with his principles of four brakes, rear suspension, uh, very short pushrod engine. That was the other thing that marked the, the motorcycles once they made their own engines. You know, pushrods at those those days, motorcycles and cars, you know, they were they were called knitting needles. They were really long. So him and Irving designed this high camshaft. It wasn't an overhead camshaft, but the, the cams sit very high. So he was this interesting, uh, in some ways, quite a rebel taking his engineering skills. He wanted to do his own thing and do it his own way. And, it, and he did. He did. And as well, 29 Wall Street crash. Uh, they were selling these you know, experimental, I guess you could say, certainly expensive motorcycles. And the depression in the States and over here was, you know, massive. People were starving. Children were going to school with no shoes on their feet. And I, you know, you, you on the one hand, you have to admire the man and his determination to press ahead with his vision. On the other hand, you think, was this the time to launch an experimental motorcycle that costs a good deal of money one of the quotes i've used in the film is there's a, a wonderful english writer called jb Priestley who was writing was in the first world war and was writing a lot in the 30s and he he observed that there were in some ways two countries and there was this poverty he says as bad as he saw in french towns during the first world war but there was this emerging even though times were tough there was still this this middle class emerging uh He's got this lovely phrase that um, girls that would look like actresses and the motorcyclists of this group were called promenade Percy's and they were the precursor to the cafe races of the 50s. And and of course, they liked motorcycles that looked and were fast. They weren't interested in putting on a very heavy sidecar and going on holiday for two weeks with all the camping gear. So they were the early sports riders, which the Vincent HRD did appeal to and you know, he kept going through the 30s, I think, really tough times. But he had the backing of his father's family and also the family of his good friend, Bill Clark. And both families injected cash at various points, which really just kept them going because the sales were not enough to keep a factory going. 
W.O. Bentley faced this exact same problem, and Wolf Barnado was his angel investor. You're right, it's a crazy time to start a high-end motorcycle company. Yeah. Particularly, as you say, when, when motorcycles really were basic transportation, and very few people could afford a Vincent HRD. But he was also a master marketer, and I don't know if this ad copy is from Philip Vincent himself, but... One of the still photos in the film that you showed, I caught this great marketing line on the motorcycle. Holds the road like a leech, steers to a hairline, and corners like a scared cat. He did write the copy, actually. <laughs> and he, he, he was this genius for, uh, you know, he was totally well-educated and, and, and wrote well, but the names were very exciting as well. You know, the pre-war it was the comet and the meteor it's kind of boy's own stuff you know we could reach for the stars and then post-war the gray flash the black lightning the black shadow you know these all stood out you know triumph or bsa would have an a7 or a tiger 110 triumph were actually very good at that sort of marketing but they didn't have these vaguely heraldic names so the black prince is a member of the english the british royal family I think during the, the Middle Ages. And so he would reach back for this sort of exciting, rather romantic branding. I think it it came to undo him because he wasn't ready or prepared to make a cheaper motorcycle or even a motorcycle like Harley Davidson were very good and Triumph became very good that would go into that, that classic you know, high consumption pattern of the 1959 comes in a different color to the one from 1958. He didn't see the point in that, which is very worthy. But of course, there is a market for people who want the latest thing and want to go down to the local pub or the calf. And I'm on the 1955 bike and the colors on the tank signify this. So Vincent's really looked the same for certainly the post-war period, 46 to 59. At a glance, they all look very similar. And they became to look quite old-fashioned. Let's delve a little bit into Philip Vincent's background. He was raised in Argentina on a cattle ranch. And that's a long way from Stevenage, north of London, where he would eventually build his motorcycles. But what was his early life like? And what I know there's a few formative moments, particularly with a, an Indian motorcycle. That's right. So he was born in England because it was the pattern, the upper middle classes, which was really his sort of social standing. The, often the colonial classes, because of course, you know, the British Empire was, if not dominant, very near dominant, perhaps the beginning of the decline. So there were British people all over the world, you know, running things and building railways. But they would often seek to come back to the UK to give birth to their children because it secured a passport. But almost as soon as he was born, him and his mother went back to Argentina. So he, he grew up on this, as you say, cattle ranch. He had a, a private tutor. His mother taught him a good deal. Um, his father's family were, you know, very well educated. They were a family of vets, veterinary surgeons, very well off or had a lot of land. And then he saw this Indian motorcycle. The mechanic had come to work on his father's Model T Ford, which, again, Vincent relates in these audio tapes. And the mechanic turned up on an early early Indian scout, spring frame model. So the first motorcycle that Vincent ever saw at the age of eight or something was a spring frame motorcycle. And the, what are the chances in the, the outback of Argentina? Um, they were very rare because, as you say, the rigid motorcycle was just dominant. So this stuck in his mind. And, and he says that the, the mechanic di disappeared in a cloud of dust, which impressed me greatly. And that was a pivotal moment, whether he noticed the rear suspension. I mean, I suspect he did because he was prodigiously bright and precocious and could be quite arrogant. So it's very likely he engaged the mechanic in conversation about the motorcycle. And it also occurs to me, you know, there's always this school of thought across certainly the Western world is, you know, do, does the education system inhibit creativity original thought and you'd have to say vincent could be an example that without the stultifying 
rigidity of a British educational system, certainly for the first sort of 10 or 12 years of his life, you know, his ideas were allowed to sort of flow quite unfettered. And the, the sort of roll call of exams and, you know, demands and sitting in a class of 30 people and, you know, you only speak when you're spoken to. I think it engendered a, a certain independence of mind in him, the fact that he grew up in this ranch. And interestingly, Phil Irving, who joined the firm in 1931, another genius in my view, had a very similar upbringing. He, he grew up in the outback in Australia. And his father was a local doctor, so they were one of the first people to get a car. And Irving had the same, uh, I guess, imagination, you know, just to think outside of the box. And I suspect that's perhaps due to Irving having a similar, certainly the first 10 or 12 years of the upbringing, that it was it was reasonably loose, it was reasonably open. They were both very well educated, but not in a Victorian school where discipline would be administered pretty brutally. You know, they had more freedom. And I think the motorcycle probably attests to that. Yeah, and the film at points is sort of a tale of two Phils, right? Irving and Vincent. And Phil Irving is pivotal because the early bikes had JAP engines, which kind of let them down. And it did a little bit of damage to their early reputation. But Phil Irving... He built entirely new engines, didn't he? Yeah, that's correct. And they had been using JAP, uh, also engines from Rudd, which was very much the norm. Um, you know, Bruff Superior didn't build their own engines. They assembled and commissioned very high-end engines from people like Matchless and JAP. Uh, and the 34TT, which they entered with JAP engines, I mean, I think they did get some finishes, but it was just a nightmare. You know, they both relay, both Vincent and Irving in their autobiographies, that, you know, they were working late, they were up early, and then the, the bike would stop halfway around the TT course. And so, you know, where we have to admire them was they decided that they would build their own engine, which was really amazing for a small firm. You know, the, if Bruff Superior bought in engines, which was a bigger firm, and these guys, what was interesting about Irving and Vincent, I think, when they were working together at the top of their game is they, they weren't in any way inhibited. <laughs> they, they were able to get some money to build these things. And so the first 500 engine retained the bore and stroke all the way through until the last motorcycle in 1955. It had the very similar design that the camshafts were high in the crankcase. So instead of these quite clumsy long push rods that were the norm they had these very short push rods i think it was called semi overhead cam and it wasn't a full overhead cam racer but it was very good for a road bike i i owned one of the the 1930 singles for many years and it was it was great it would certainly cruise on a smooth road at 65 you could get up to 70 it handled really good another innovation that they brought in was the the Vincent motorcycle had four brakes, so two at the front and two at the back. Most motorcycles had one each end. So in, in theory, not in practice, of course, but you had twice the braking, another innovation. So the single was ready for the 1935 TT. Um, Irving said, after they were so disappointed with the JAP engines, typical Irving, I can design a better engine with my hand tied behind my back. But they did it, and they built and designed it within a few months and in the 1935 tt with rear suspension with their new engines i think they came seventh ninth and twelfth up against norton veliset motor guzzi these big big factories that employed thousands of people and it did put them on the map and um the rear suspension it was shown to be beneficial not just not dangerous but beneficial and uh, the contemporary reports sort of say when you watch the Norton, which was a rigid motorcycle, and you watch the Vincent go round the sort of demanding corners, the Vincent was much more composed because the rider wasn't struggling with the, the bucking of the rear end. And that comes down to, you know, how do you finish a race? Obviously, you go fast, but rider fatigue, uh, the sort of wear and tear on the chain, all of those are improved by even modest rear suspension. Yeah, and keeping that power to the ground. Yeah. Uh, is critical um, as you say that that bucking will induce a fishtail and now you're off in the in the weeds 
you're in the weeds. Yeah. And they, they, they steer beautifully. A lot of the pre-war motorcycles do, in fact. They, you know, the, the chassis wasn't really the limiting factor. The limiting factor was the engine power, but also the suspension and often the brakes. But actually, they got the steering really well by then in terms of turning and that nice balance that you want in a good motorcycle. You want a reasonably good turn in, but you want that stability from a longer wheelbase. And the, the 1930s Vincent's steer really beautifully, really nicely. And the bikes also looked far more modern than their contemporaries. And I think the best example of this might be the Model B Rapide. Yeah. And, and that bike also has a very interesting design element. Yeah, the B Rapide is it's the model I own, actually. It's my favorite one <laughs> because, as John Surtees says, it's kind of where it all started. So it was launched in 1946. They they were planning and working on it during the war, which is a little bit unaddressed in their respective autobiographies, but they can only have been because it came out in 1946 and it dispensed with a frame, which is a, another innovation. Uh, and Vincent says they, they looked at the engine they were designing and, and he says nothing's going to whip that, which is kind of 1940s parlance, i.e., it's not going to stretch. It's not going to break. Why do we need a down tube? Why do we need the tubes underneath the engine? So, again, as, as Surtees says, they affixed the, the front steering, goes on the oil tank, and the engine sits under the oil tank, and the oil tank is part of the frame. And then the same with the rear suspension. And you're right. It, it, it's If you look at the post-war models from the, the big British factories, you know, they were really sluggish out of the gate. They were rebranding and repainting pre-war models. Vincent came out with this all-new model. Very, really heavy rationing in the UK at the time. It, it, some people say the rationing was worse in 1946 and 47 than it was during the war. Everything was limited. So you, you had a coupon for a certain amount of butter, a coupon for some milk, eggs, petrol, I mean, it was, I think Bill Bryson, you know, the great American writer, when he, when he came to England, he said, I'm sure it could have been a communist country without anybody noticing because the state was so into people's lives because of that post-war period. And they came out with this 110 mile an hour motorcycle. And I, I just think that's one of the lines in the film is that nobody needed and few could afford. But, you know, thank goodness for people like Irving and Vincent for having that vision. Of course, the mantra was export or die, wasn't it? Yeah. And that was true for all of British industry. Yes. And Vincent's family and his own history were very useful because they sold, can't remember the exact number, it might be even two or 300 motorcycles into Argentina. Uh, and there's some nice pictures of uh, Perron's motorcycle escort on Vincent Rapides. So quite a few motorcycles went to Argentina, export or die. It gave them the hard currency to buy the raw materials. And Vincent went to America, I think, 1947, 48 and 49. So we've, we've put together a sort of diary from the films to promote the motorcycles in America. And obviously they were, in some ways, they suited America. They were big, powerful V-twins that would cruise on those long roads. There were no motorways in the United Kingdom. Um, and it really suited them. And they, they did get, certainly in California, this cult grew up very quickly that to be the fastest on the block, you probably needed a Vincent because they were significantly quicker than the Harleys or the Indians. And another key moment was when the Vincent went to Bonneville. Let's talk about that because that's a fascinating tale. And probably the most famous photo of a man on a motorcycle comes out of this story. Yes, it, it, it must be. Roly Free, who was a very successful racer before the war, he was stationed near Bonneville, I think, at, in, in Utah during the war, but he never lost the lust for speed, as, as these guys don't, I'm sure you know, and many women. So the, the, the story of how it happened, and we've pieced this together, talking to a lot of people who were there or talked to people who were there, there was a dealer in Los Angeles in Burbank called um, Mickey Martin, and he wanted to promote the motorcycles. So he wrote to a guy called John Edgar, who was a very uh, wealthy sports entrepreneur, and said, I'm going to 
get this bike together. Roly Free has agreed to ride it. And they got this bike together. They'd met Vincent. So Vincent went out for a few evenings with uh, with Edgar and they drank some whiskey and talked about. And Vincent being Vincent, he said, this thing will do 150. And I think the record was 136 at the time, a Harley Davidson record. And and again, that's where you have to admire him. He just had this confidence, um, but, you know, could back it up. Uh, so this bike was commissioned by Edgar and Roly Free as the rider. As usual, a kind of rush job. We've got to get to Bonneville before the fall because the salt breaks up and then it, it rains. And they got it out there September. And the, the, the picture, so it's not really a spoiler because the picture is famous. Rowley is doing the runs. I think he's getting 144, 148. And his leathers had been damaged. So the levers were kind of flapping even more than they would anyway. And this is brilliant. So he thought, oh, I'll just, I'll ride semi-naked. And he had swimming trunks on and a pair of kind of trainers and he got to 150 and he's he's as many people would know you know lying prone on the motorcycle so not a conventional riding position and he um he did 150 and vincent was right this thing would do it um, okay roly had to remove all his clothing <laughs> and stun everybody and i i just think what a what an amazingly brave or stupid thing to do because as you may know quite often with motorcycling in an accident Okay, the broken bones are not what you want, but it's quite often abrasions that will risk the rider's life. And so, you know, he would have certainly perished coming off at anything over 20 or 30, and he got to 150. Years later, my father organised with another friend, uh, the Vincent Owners Club chartered two planes in 1977 to go to Canada to this big international rally. Uh, anyway, Roly Free was there, so I got to meet him, and he was this very interesting elderly man who you know even at the age of i think i was 11 or 12 you could tell was just something special would just go that little bit further than anybody else and those bonneville runs cemented roly free in the annals of motorcycle history i think anyone who is really into bikes knows that photo knows at least the story of the speed runs and by the way the other amazing thing about it was that roly kept his head out of the slipstream. So he wasn't looking ahead. He was looking down and trying to follow a black line painted on the salt. And in the film, people will see this, but the vintage footage that you guys have included of his runs in the film, he is on that line and doesn't deviate. I mean, the focus and intensity of his, of his concentration is incredible. It's just amazing. And uh, you know, I, I did a high speed on a bike once when I was, was a motorcycle journalist. So I did 150 and I thought, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> and I was, you know, in leathers on an aerodrome on a modern Japanese bike. And you think that 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 speed record, I think it must be the most brave uh, speed record ever attempted. And of course, soon after, people were trying to do the same thing as Roly, you know, strip back on their clothing and lie prone. And that was very soon banned because the danger is inherent you're not in control of the motorcycle you haven't got you know your legs over the motorcycle if there's a wobble it's over there's there's no way of steering the motorcycle with your legs and your backside which you do quite a bit phenomenal phenomenal and it made vincent's name in america worldwide you know it was in life magazine it was filmed and we were lucky to get the archive to use and i think still when people see that footage there's an intake of breath they go <gasps> what and rightly so yeah and the other thing too is that people don't realize maybe but when you're cutting through the air at high speed it's not a linear increase in the force of the the air against you the faster you go it just gets so much more intense and for raleigh to do that and hang on not just kind of hang on but do it with real style and and skill it, i just can't get over it no i can't i still I shudder when I look at it, and I've looked at it lots of times editing the film. Uh, and I think you know, the the editors who we hooked up with about a year ago, a lovely guy called Russell Ike and and Liz Deegan, they've really made the most of it. You know, just those little subtle, what shot do we go to here? Where do we bring the music up? And I, I'm I'm hoping, and I think it does really 
comes through in the film. Just what an amazing record run. I mean, to me, it's the most amazing record run ever. I know there's there's cars and there's boats and there's airplanes. This is the most amazing. Another character I think we should mention is Marty Dickerson. Yeah. Who was just an L.A. biker, right? Yeah. And his, his famous runs, well, famous within Vincent circles, a bit lesser known elsewhere. And again, this is where Vincent was this maverick figure. He basically um, made an arrangement with Mickey Martin, who was behind the Roly Free Run, or introduced Roly to John Edgar. And despite the Roly Free Runs, they had Vincent repeats that were just not selling. They were sat in the crates. So they thought, okay, let's be a bit clever. And it would be now, we would term it guerrilla marketing. So they hired Marty to go down to, you know, 100, 200 miles south of L.A. and just pitch up in a town, park the bike and see if he could get involved in some backstreet races, which he did. And he, he, he won most of the races, I think maybe all. Uh, the cops offered to do a race with him. They were on their Indians and the Vincent beat the Indians. And I just it's like a Western, isn't it? The guy rides into town. <laughs> Parks the motorcycle slash horse. And, you know, Marty was very laid back, lovely guy. And he just says, I was sat in the diner and some people are outside. And then, do you race this? And he kind of goes, yeah, okay. (laughs) And then gets, has to take on the fastest car in Arizona and and just about beats it because he sort of misses a gear slightly. And I, I just, again, I love the idea that this on the surface, very conventional, highly educated Englishman, is by then he was back in England. It's it's like a heist movie, isn't it? It's I think it's the Thomas Crown affair, isn't it? Where he plans the heist, and in fact he's just kind of watching it. The Steve McQueen figure. I, I, the more I've got into the film, the more we've edited it. The more I'm glad these sort of mad adventures that Vincent and the people who worked and rode for him went on have emerged really well. Because Triumph didn't do this, and BSA wouldn't do this. This is very different ways of promoting a motorcycle. Yeah, it's a far cry from the standard corporate marketing approach. But I love your comparison of Marty Dickerson to sort of a the stranger in town on the black horse. Yeah, and Marty was really great rider. He did 177 and on a supercharged Black Lightning, I think in the late 50s. But, you know, as he says in the film, I had nothing else to do. And, <laughs> and, and Marty lived his life really kind of going with what was next in terms of working on Vincent's. He was a college uh, educator, I think in the seventies and eighties, who sort of semi-retired and, you know, taught a lot of young men and women how to maintain motorcycles and, and build motorcycles. Uh, great character. Again, I was very happy to sort of know. In fact, I rode for a period in France with him in the early eighties at a Vincent rally. And he had this, he was using a stick, but he'd have this a sort of telescopic stick, which he would put on the panniers on the bike. And when he'd dismount the Vincent, he'd unfurl his stick and lengthen it out. And then we'd all walk to the bar. (laughs) There's something quite cool about that as well. Now, another figure who I was just so pleased to see that you were able to interview was John Surtees, who of course was a world champion Grand Prix motorcycle racer and in Formula One as well. Yeah, he was uh, just amazing and took a while to... I'd met him in the Isle of Man years earlier in a kind of, as a fan, got his autograph and I knew he'd worked at Vincent's and I'd approached him and, you know, oh, I'm very busy, you know, but half the battle with filmmaking and, and journalism is to keep going. Uh, and eventually he said, okay, we'll come down and have a, have a 10 minute chat. And I thought, well, we'll be more than 10 minutes, but you know, so he joined the firm in, I think 1949 or 50 his father had ridden them. His father sold them. He was a big, successful Vincent dealer in South London. And one of the interesting things, we didn't have room for it in the film, but John's first competition was as the passenger in his father's sidecar, Vincent. One of the theories which John agreed with when I put it to him was that transition from two wheels to four is often really unsuccessful. You know, Mike Hellwood tried it. I think Rossi has tried it. And one of the reasons at that time was on a motorcycle you you didn't want the tires to lose traction but because john's first motorcycling was in a sidecar with a vincent thousand cc engine so his father would drift this round the corners so when he got in a car he said it wasn't it wasn't too strange to drift a car 
And most motorcyclists go, oh my goodness, no, no, stop, don't drift, you're losing traction. But nobody will ever do the same, I think, get the 500 Grand Prix title and a Formula One title. And, you know, he he was absolutely devoted to his racing. You know, if you read his, there's an autobiography or ghosted, I think it was out in 1961, 62, and he just, <laughs> he just said, oh, they'd all go off to the pub and the bar. And I said, no, I'm going to go and work on the clutch, you know, completely devoted. And, and that endured. And again, I think rather like Vincent, his only proper job was when he was an apprentice at Vincent's. And my, my favourite Surtees story is he was passed over for a drive at Le Mans in the Ferrari team. And again, you know, this happens to racers, as we know, and uh, and 99% of them would have gone to the bar, got slightly drunk, said, that Ferrari doesn't know what he's doing. Why doesn't he give me a ride or drive? Um, Surtees got in, I think he had a Mercedes SL, <laughs> From this snub, drove overnight from Le Mans down to the Ferrari headquarters, got there at about half past six, waited for Ferrari to turn up for work and walked in his office and gave him a piece of his mind. And he never drove for Ferrari again. And (laughs) this seething motorcycle genius is driving across the Alps. And just, uh, I'm going to have my say. I'm going to have my say. I don't care if he's called Ferrari or not. You know, I'm John Surtees. Don't drop me from your team. I won't say the word that he said. Go ahead. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I think he told, this is what his John's mechanic said. He he told Ferrari he was a f-ing idiot for dropping John Surtees. <laughs> well, I think Surtees expressed what all of Enzo Ferrari's drivers felt at one time or another, that they were, you know, expendable in a sense, that they were rented horses. Yeah, cannon fodder, I think. And... John Surtees then, I think he went to Honda, didn't he, straight after and did pretty well. But yes. I think I'm right in saying Ferrari didn't get another world championship for maybe six or seven years. And John Surtees didn't get another world Formula One championship. So I, I just like the idea that Ferrari had met his match with this quite quietly spoken Englishman from South London. But he was going to not be dropped from the team without Ferrari knowing about it. <laughs> By the way, your story about John Surtees going back to the shed and working on the clutch or whatever mm. while everyone else is out at the pub, yeah, that kind of makes me think of Guy Martin. You know, that's something that Guy would do. Yes, very much. And uh, you know, the, there are the Playboy drivers, as we know. You know, Mike Hale would, would be in the pub blowing a trumpet. And James Hunt, as we know, would. James Hunt, of course. Yeah, James Hunt immediately comes to mind. Yeah, um, and, I, and I love that tradition, but. It's been said about Halewood that when he was riding for Honda and he was riding this really powerful motorcycle that didn't handle that well, the 500, and just to see if he noticed that the Japanese mechanics would change the spring rates in the rear shock absorbers. And he never said a word. <laughs> he didn't notice. <laughs> he just get on it and go and ride that thing right to the limit and almost the same on every lap and then come in. Uh, whereas, you know, people like John Surtees would be chatting with the mechanics and you know, he'd learned some Japanese and he learned Italian, absolutely devoted to it. I went I went to his funeral, which was a really interesting event. Of course it was, but it was actually really moving because his daughters both said some words. And of course, you know, to them, he was a father and it was really interesting to learn. They told some lovely stories about their holidays and they eventually they, they the family had said to John, can we can we set off later? Because he's driving so fast to get down to Cornwall. <laughs> they thought setting off at eight at night would slow him down on the family holidays. <laughs> but they it was really moving that they talked about this man that we all know from the outside. Very fond memories of, you know, I guess the gentler side and the family side to someone who was pretty stoical absolutely dedicated to his craft and and that was that was wonderful to attend that yes and it speaks to how long you've been working on the film because john surtees passed away in 2017 and i mean it's amazing that you were able to get his memories on film that's yeah and it was uh i think it was john surtees last major interview sort of on camera and he'd never really talked about Vincent's much. Obviously, you know, people had quoted him and asked him. And I think he was, I think part of the appeal that he said, yes, come down and talk to me, was he'd not perhaps been asked in much detail about Vincent's. And he knew Philip Vincent and his father knew Philip Vincent very well. I mean, John would go there. 
John's mother, Margaret, was a really fast rider as well. And he would go in the sidecar with his mother to the Vincent factory to pick up spares in 1948, 49. And there's a nice story, another one we didn't have room for, but one of the chaps who worked at the factory, a guy called Ernie Allen, who's in the film briefly, he said he was going down to a race meeting and a motorcycle, a Vincent psycho outfit overtook him and he was on his Vincent. And of course he said, wow, that, that outfit's going fast. Is it? He got down to the race meeting another 20 miles and he's struggling to keep up with this outfit. And as you may know, you know, outfits are hard work to ride fast. And it was John Surtees' mother with John and his sister in the sidecar. <laughs> That's great. And Ernie couldn't, couldn't keep up with them on a solo. I know. He said he got in the pits and this woman took her sort of flying hat off and John and his sister, I think, got out of the sidecar. <laughs> it's that sort of family, isn't it? They seem to have spent their life traveling, you know, 20% faster than anybody else. What a moment. Yeah. Now, getting back to Philip Vincent himself, in the archival footage that you've included in the film, we see a really kind of gregarious, playful, jolly guy. And yet there was a, uh, an event in his life that kind of changed all that and and people saw a change in him and it may have spelled the demise of the company in some respect yes he had an accident in i think february 1947 uh the, there's an aerodrome which is still there called Gransden, which is where the the vincent factory so still near stevenage the, the vincent factory would go and test the bikes and I think 47. So, you know, the repeat had been out maybe 12 months, maybe a bit less. Certainly the first few repeats were, were not sold in big numbers, were not made in big numbers. And the gearbox seized. And he was the other side of Gransden Aerodrome to where the van was and the other people from the factory. And he didn't have a helmet on. And, you know, in that classic, perhaps post-war period, you know, it's brush yourself off and get back on the job. But he was, we then discovered from talking to people that he was in a coma. Well, the estimates change. He seems to have been in hospital for eight or nine months and was in a coma for quite a long time. And I don't think many people at the factory knew because why would, you know, <laughs> why, why would the, the boss's state of health be communicated to the shop floor? It's probably better that it wasn't. But Surtees was quite key with this and other people once we found them and asked them was that actually his personality changed he wasn't the gregarious as you say there's some lovely footage of him dancing in the garden playing with a parrot and he became more serious i suspect the fate of the company began to weigh heavier because they were beginning to lose i don't think they'd ever made a lot of money but they were they were losing money and he seemed to as we say in the film you know he'd attracted the greatest motorcycling minds and then he seemed to be driving them out so irving left in 49 and then george brown who was this wonderful record setter who was the sort of top guy in the test team he left and there were arguments george brown slammed the door so hard when he left that the glass broke in from vincent's office and he, he just it's it's tangible and of course it's not just the sort of post-traumatic stress that we might call it now but i think the business environment was changing but he didn't seem to have the personal skills that he had before the accident and and certainly so says he just says he was a changed man and the bikes stopped being made in 1955 and and he never got another vehicle that he designed produced i mean he worked on ideas all the time Ugh, could could he have been harnessed in a different way perhaps he could i mean he always despaired at what he says in one of the audio tapes, the, the cheapness of production that's designed into vehicles. And it was anathema to him that you would build something to a price. You know, he wanted to build the best motorcycle in the world and, and then go and find some buyers. He did tangibly change and talking to his daughter, she had a, obviously an interesting conversation with him at some point because, you know, being a 12-year-old, she said, why don't you ride a motorbike? You know, you, your name's on the side of these motorcycles. So then Philip Vincent then explained to Dee, his daughter, well, I can't, I've lost balance. I can't maintain balance on a motorcycle. And, you know, Dee says rather wistfully, did he lose some passion? And I, I suspect he did. Yeah. By the way, uh, it's great to hear a familiar voice in the film. And that is your narrator, Ewan McGregor. And I'm curious about Ewan signing on to the project because, of course, he's a huge motorcycle 
aficionado and a diehard writer. Of course, we've got you know his series of films with Charlie Borman. Talk about getting you and signed on. It was um, fortuitous, actually. I, a very good friend of ours and a very good friend of the film, Greg McBride, knows one of Ewan's mechanics. So he said, well, maybe you can mention this film. And they sort of got word through to him. And then he phoned me up out of the blue and said, oh, it sounds great. I'll, I'll do the voiceover. And he looked at the script. And then a week later, this is in the, the depths of lockdown, so James Salter, our, an American producer, was in a studio in Santa Monica. Ewan was broadcasting from home and I was on FaceTime video in West London. And we went through the whole script. It was a sort of three, three and a half hour session. And it, of course, it was wonderful, not partly because of his name. You know, there's no doubt it's going to help the project. But I just, his voice is like a musical instrument. Uh, and it's so elegantly delivered. And the, the pitch is just... I don't tire of hearing it. I, I just think I could go to sleep listening to this. So it was a really good balance of his enthusiasm, his professional skills, but also this sense in which he's on a, a little bit of a journey as well to find out more about Philip Vincent and his motorcycles. Yeah, absolutely. And just the fact that Ewan is so fluent with motorcycling, it adds a dimension to the film that I think if you had had maybe an anonymous narrator, it, it wouldn't have that same effect. So I, I think that's a fantastic element of the film. David Lancaster, writer and director of Speed is Expensive. The website is speedisexpensive.com and you'll be making the film festival circuit. Really excited to see it out there. And, and I hope that everyone can catch the film. Thanks very much, Maurice. It's it, wonderful. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, and I'm, I'm so glad you liked the film. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash HP Heritage. You can support the show over there and tell your friends, write a review. All of those things help me reach more gearheads like you. I'll see you back here on Wednesday, July 27th for a discussion about one of the finest motor cars ever made, the famous Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost. So until then, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening. <laughs>